Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. All right, welcome back to another edition. And last week, we started our discussion with uh, Sonia Britt Luter, who uh, is a financial therapy legend. And <laughs> I'm not her personal marketing Not yet. Agent. <laughs> And one thing that I brought up is in the in the treatment, I'm curious as to your take on this, because I guess I've been influenced by Gabor Mate and some of his work, which says that under every addiction, there lies trauma. And when I look at financial behaviors that are, are often uh, really hurtful to a person, not in a person's best interest, of which addictions aren't either. I typically run into a lot of trauma and (laughs) where the saying came from, it's not about the money. And I'm curious as to your thoughts about that or yeah, just how do you frame that up? Because oftentimes I will use the word trauma around mental health folks. And it seems that even trauma itself, the word has different camps and different meanings. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big question and certainly no easy answer. But really, when you introduce this idea of trauma, you are very clearly in the family systems arena, which means that anything that you adjust is going to have an influence on things that you can see and things that you cannot see. Addiction is one of the most beautiful examples of this. Take any celebrity that you want who's went to a rehab center and they were doing all sorts of crazy things. Oh, let's just send them to this 30 day program. They're living in this nice secluded area and they get better. They stop using drugs. They stop drinking. They look good. They look healthy and then they get out. And then what happens every single time back to the drinking and the drugs? Because you're taking that person and putting them right back into the same system that they came from. And people in that system, the people in the household, the spouse, the children, the parents need that person to be using Mm -hmm. because it hides something else that's going on for them. Mm -hmm. If we pay attention to Susie's drug problem, you're not noticing dad's abusive behavior or you're not noticing that. We just filed bankruptcy for the third time this year, Uh, not this year, this decade. And they're serving a purpose. And when they stop their addiction, it influences everybody else in that system, just like the gear shaft, right? And so to really be able to treat trauma or addiction, you've got to incorporate those other elements, whether it's there in the room or 
if they're not willing to be a part of that therapy experience, to at least be able to help your client know how to interact with those parts of the system so that changes can be made in a way that allows that person's gear to keep shifting in the way that they want it to keep shifting because it's going to change the entire system. Whether they want it to or not, it will make an impact. So when you bring that into finances Mm -hmm. and the fact that finances typically are impacting more than one person. Absolutely. I mean, especially if there's a, if there is a family. Yes. Always, right? Regardless if there's a family or not, because you got the money from somewhere, Mm -hmm. work, inheritance, somewhere the money came from. So yes, there's already another gear right there. And you're you're reminding me of um, working with couples. Yeah. And what I learned from Ted when I was working with him around that is you have the two partners and then you have the coupleship, right? Exactly. So you really have three entities in the room. And the um, graduate course that I teach at GGU has a couple chapters on working with couples, which comes right out of facilitating financial health, right? And I can't tell you how many of the students that go through that course come out of the course deciding they're not going to work with couples in their financial planning firm. <laughs> I believe it. And I, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I think we've gone too far here. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have a pretty meager existence. Well, I think it would be equally fascinating to throw it back at them. Does this person exist in isolation? Any client. Because the answer is always no. So it's going to be complicating. Naturally, it's more complicating when the two people are sitting there in front of you. But even when another person isn't in that room, they are for sure influencing what the client does with their money. Yes. So I recently took some training in couples therapy. And there's, well, that's another long story, but there's a part of me. The last place I want to be is where there's a couple fighting, <laughs> right? And I remember, That's not particularly fun. Oh, man. Uh, I remember Ted, he'd almost get excited when a couple was fighting. Like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is something to sort out. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I am spiritually hiding under the heaviest piece of furniture in the room. Like, oh, my God, somebody's going to die. And I thought as I went through this training, there is no training for CFPs. Mm-hmm. In dealing with couples, much less psychological training, right? Right. Which is starting to shift with the, the publication of the uh, psychology of financial planning. But it, it just hit me that this, this is a unique, see, hmm, this is a unique skill set amongst therapists, right? Because not okay. all th- therapists, our couples therapists or even want to be couples therapists. Precisely. Would it be right? I've never thought about this before. Is like a marriage and family therapist, are they inherently couples therapists? They are inherently relational therapists. Uh Part of the degree requirement is to have, if it's not half, it's more than half of your training hours be relational, whether that's coupleship or multi-generation 
but it is very much relational focus and it's very much based in the systems approach Um, as compared to something like social work or something like clinical psychology that might be more individually focused marriage and family therapy implies the relational element it doesn't mean that the other occupations don't use relational therapy it's just not a requirement of their programs so this is kind of like a duh moment for me because <laughs> <laughs> it'll make me look brilliant so let's <laughs> i've just never thought of marriage and family therapy of course yeah both of those words are relational of course so have you ever heard of internal family systems i, I have guess. from you in fact <laughs> Well, I start getting all excited because the founder of IFS, Dick Schwartz, was a marriage and family systems therapist. And he he once said it was the be-all, end-all to therapy. He was out to prove that this is where it's at. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up applying that to the internal family system. So as you talk about the dynamics of the external family system, it's it makes a lot of sense in the training I've gotten when we just flip it, just flip the mirror to looking at all those parts of yourself internally that have the same vested interests and the trauma and the wounding and all the, the relationship between the parts and things of that. Absolutely. Type. But that's harder. I don't want to look at my problems. <laughs> I'll look at your problems and I'll tell you what you were doing wrong. But people have a really hard time focusing on their contribution to problems. And that includes therapists, right? For sure. That just blew me away. And again, it was Ted when I said, and I was raised in in on-site in my my therapy, right? Mm -hmm. It used to be in Rapid City. Yeah. And so that's the container in which I viewed therapy. That was normal. And I would see therapists in the groups. I'm trying to remember a group that I was in that didn't have a therapist doing their own work, right? Mm -hmm. I just thought that was normal. And then he told me one day, I said, well, what percent of therapists do their own work? And he said something and I said, 10%? He said, no, I said 1%. And I thought, that cannot be. That can't be. And when um, Sarah Swantner, when she uh, worked for me and she was going through her master's in clinical therapy, she would tell me of the people that were in her class that it, it was just like, what, me? I, I want to be a therapist. I don't need therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like financial planners, right? <laughs> Not so different. Well, exactly. Which is something that I did a lot of work in back in 2008 and research on. Why don't financial planners have planners? And I think I even recently did a podcast that was, I think it was, oh my God, my financial therapist has a financial therapist. Should I be worried? (laughs) (laughs) I have a great book for the listeners to read. Yeah? It's called Maybe I Should Talk to Somebody. And it's by Lori Gottlieb. And she's a therapist. And she talks about that inner struggle herself of her going to her own therapist and what that was like seeing the therapist while working with her own therapy clients. And it's really eye-opening in terms of that struggle and how much she benefited and and 
how it made her a better therapist because she was on the other side of the table. What's the name of that book again? Maybe I should talk to somebody or someone. Okay, great. I need to check that out and put it on my stack of 30 things to read. (laughs) Yes, and then we could get into doing our own work, how important it is for practitioners, whether you're a financial planner or a therapist. Mm-hmm. And maybe I I go down that rabbit hole all the time. So listeners of the podcast are <laughs> <laughs> they're familiar are, are pretty used to that. I had I wanted to get back to you on your career shift, right? Yep. So you spent twelve years right in academia. I'm pretty sure that's right. And then you shifted to the uh, private sector, working as a consultant. How was that going from academia to the private world? I don't know if any of the listeners will think this is funny or they can relate, but the biggest eye-opener for me was the first time I went to make a purchase in the private sector. And I said, who do I ask for prior approval for this? Where do I send my receipt? And I got laughed at for both of them. (laughs) So that's one thing I learned. Um, (laughs) but it was it was great because here's one of the key things I learned there is still a lot of need out in the real world for more of this training just as you mentioned a few minutes ago in terms of there's not really anything available in terms of couples training for financial planners until now because that's what I'm doing now but when I was working in the consulting space that's one of the things I saw is that we as financial planners tend to portray ourselves as being very confident and competent when in reality maybe there are some missing pieces that could be improved upon and And yeah, really focusing more on those relational elements and how do you communicate to clients in a way that you feel comfortable and a way that they feel comfortable receiving that information. How long did you spend in private practice before, you know, when you got done Mm -hmm. with your MFT and then you went, went to Kansas State? Texas Tech. Or Texas Tech, right. Yep. Two years. Okay. And what practice were you in then? So I was doing private practice as a therapist. Okay. But doing the financial stuff, but that it wasn't really yet a thing to call it financial therapy. So I was doing therapy, working primarily with financial issues. And I, at the same time, was working at Head Start, which is a preschool program for lower income families. Oh, sure, yeah. And so I was doing therapy with the children and the families, but also financial counseling with the parents. As a low-income provider of child care, there was a lot of really dire types of situations and helping people get their budget in place and helping them really analyze opportunities for maximizing the resources that they had is what I did there. How did that inform you as an academic Yeah, in, in private practice? Yeah, it's been a very wild ride, if you will, from one end of the socioeconomic status to the complete opposite end of the socioeconomic status. And here's another thing I've learned is that we're all human and we all have the same desires. We all have the same 
set of values, yes, there are different struggles that come with lower income. There's also different struggles that come with higher income. But when you get down to what makes a person a person, it's what they value and how they live by those values. And you can do that across the entire wealth spectrum equally as well. You uh, remind me of when we were doing the on-site workshops. One of the things that we tried to do was discourage people from talking about what they did for occupation or how much money they had or anything like that and just get get to know each other on who they are, who, who they're showing up as. And that was one of the most powerful things of that program is to discover after five days, then, then everybody would un- unveil themselves, right? And it's, it's like, oh, I've fallen in love with this person who's an attorney, but I didn't know that and I hate attorneys. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating? And I remember one lady who is worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I remember her sobbing for 25 minutes deeply. That in that moment, I discovered that there was, there was a place where a person can have too much. And this is not a dollar number, but, but that, that there was a place of where, where that can, can be harmful and how the person deals with it. And I also remember her saying, nobody, I'm, my friends tell me nobody works harder than I do at being middle class. And then in the same room, you can have somebody who's bankrupt. And it's, you know, all the same issues. It is. That present. Yeah. So one of the passion projects that I've always wanted to do, and I've just never really had correction, I've never made the time for it, is interviewing people about their great loss. You know my personal history. And how are some people okay after a major life event? And some people are not okay. And so I started interviewing people, people I know, and then they would tell me about other people or a friend of a friend. And so it's really snowballed into meeting all sorts of really wonderful people. And what I have gathered from every single one of those conversations is what helps people with their resiliency, with crawling out of a really horrible situation and surviving, perhaps even thriving past a great loss, is that they are a person. As an example, I am Sonia. I am not Sonia, a widow. I am not Sonia, a parent. I am not Sonia, a wealthy white woman. I am just Sonia. And that is who I am to my core. And other people, they they haven't said that directly in their story, but they'll say, I am not XYZ. I'm not this. And I say, it sounds like you are you. Like, yeah. That is it. And what does that mean? Like that we are living our authentic self and that's what helps people live a wonderful life. That is really profound. That was not the answer I was expecting from how do you dig out of a great loss or how do you find that resiliency? And I'm going back to like when I first got into um, the ACOA Adult Children of Alcoholics program. And I would, uh, you know, you just introduce yourself by your first name. And I, I, my family name had some prominence in our community because my dad was in real estate 
in the name Kaler was on signs all over town and people thought mm-hmm. we owned the whole town, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was not the case. And I remember the profound sadness when one person discovered after me showing up at this meeting for three, four, five months, when he found out my last name. Oh, he says, what are you doing here? And he caught himself realizing what he had just said and said, I guess you're here because you need to be here. That's right. But, and also, uh, Sonia, I'm thinking of what very few celebrities or mega billionaires that I've dealt with, that they can't show up and be just Sonia or just Rick anywhere. And what a precious gift it is that we can be seen for our essence and not for our fame or our money. Not what role we're playing in that moment, just your essence. Uh, and it's it's kind of like, uh, that's one of those things that I always took for, for granted. I didn't even understand there was any value to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the, the healing journey is when someone sees us for who we are and we get that love and acceptance. Especially when we have laid all of our dirty laundry, all of our crap, everything that we're afraid is going to separate us from another. And then we get more love and acceptance. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That takes us all the way back to the beginning, right? With the trauma. Like, how do you deal with that? Well, you treat a person for who they are as their authentic self. You don't layer on all of the other pieces that have happened to a person. That is not who they are. Those are events or things or places that they've been done, but that's not who they are as a person. What do you think about what do you think about this uh, belief? I've I've said before, sometimes I get pushback, sometimes I don't. And that is the thought that we're not traumatized by ourselves, typically. It's in relationship. It is at the hand of another human being. In some way or not. And I don't think that we get out of the trauma without, unless we're in relationship with another human being. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And I can also tell you from the people that I have had the true honor to interview is that they always do bring up a key relationship for them. It's not usually a collection of people. It's one key relationship that really helped them get through that difficult situation. So to a certain degree, I do agree with you. To a similar degree, I disagree with you because it's really up to that person in their mindset in terms of who they want to be. Do you want to be Sonia the victim? Do you want to be Sonia the widow? Do you want to be Sonia the lost one for life? Or do you want to be Sonia, the one who's living her life right now for what it is as Sonia? Yeah, that, and that's really stressing uh, being present, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Just being in, in the here and now and what a journey that is. I mean, it's you hear that carpe diem, you hear that all a lot. Just be present for your life. Well, <laughs> <laughs> harder than it seems. I did a lot of training with the Enneagram. Uh, Russ Hudson and in the end of the day he would say the Enneagram is all about that it's all about how can I show up for this moment right now that said I think we're running out of time if I'm doing the math right 
as I look at the ticking clock. (laughs) (laughs) This has been just an extraordinary privilege and honor. Thank you. I appreciate it. It brings me back to on-site. Yes. Yep. And uh, just everything that you have uh, given to the to the profession, given to financial therapy, I so much uh, appreciate your your leadership and uh, who you are is just uh, so phenomenal. And I am wishing you just the best of success in your you. foray into the uh, in being a business woman. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll look forward to uh, talking, talking at you again next (laughs) week. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.